It's Friday, May 19th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, civil engineering student and Dutch News senior PANA correspondent, and with me today are Dutch News contributing editor and beach dweller Gordon Derrick, and fellow contributing editor and Dutch News happiness guru Molly Quell. I am a happiness guru. Are you? I radiate happiness. <laughs> yeah, indeed you do. I do. Um, Let's die from radiation poison. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much how it works. Yes. Kind of radiation. So how are you guys? It's nice to have you back, Paul. Oh, thank you. It's it's, it's the first time we've been with all three of us in a, in a while, well, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's been a few, it could like have been a month sick or, or traveling or something or both. Yeah, well, so, uh, I, I've moved to the beach temporarily, or rather, the beach has moved to me because they're uh, digging the road up outside my house. Oh, so it's just so sand so the, when you look it's up just the door. literally sand. Nice. Yeah, you, that's when you realize the Hague was basically just built on sand. Yeah. <laughs> have you been like? Did you have you been digging holes in the sand and sitting in them? Not yet, but we might uh, do some impromptu sandcastle building at the weekend. Nice. Yeah. I'm it, sure he's not German, so there's yeah. no. Uh, yeah, no, we're not digging canals. Are there no? There's no stereotypes about the Scots and the beach. We don't really go to the beach because it's too cold. There's a stereotype: is you dive in the water when it's three degrees and you come out just bright blue okay <laughs> that's a good uh, that's a good usage of the beach i guess <laughs> so gordon you bought a new bike yes i bought a new bike so flew down here on my brand new machine it's a beautiful <laughs> thing it's a lovely bike I, i'd take it to bed if i could but, uh, <laughs> and, uh, well this has gotten awkward <laughs> <laughs> do you have any bad secrets to uh, reveal molly do i have any new se- i have no new secret i survived food poisoning yesterday oh. so oh. i'm feeling much better today which is good but yeah other than that my life has been pretty boring for the last week yeah well you're still radiating though i'm still yeah. radiating happiness but not food poisoning no but not food poisoning thankfully well this week we'll update you on a royal captain a retiring captain and also two pandas and four men leaving their quarantine after that we'll discuss the failed efforts to form a government and what will happen next The secret life of King Willem-Alexander made headlines across the world this week when it was revealed in a Telegraaf newspaper interview that for the past 21 years the king has been a guest pilot for the, quite literally, Royal Dutch Airlines. Twice a month the king flies a KLM city hopper and this enables him to keep up with the required 150 flying hours a year in order to keep his flying permit. The king is currently retraining to fly Boeing 737s which, coincidentally, will be the type of the new government plane expected to be delivered in 2019. He must have gotten recognized, like, all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would expect it, right? Yeah. Hmm. Well, he uh, he didn't. Uh, yeah, well, usually he boards the plane uh, last minute, but before 9-11, passengers could just walk into the cockpit, and he said in the Telegraph interview that would often uh, yeah, well, result in surprised faces when uh, when people recognized him. But after the 9-11, uh, that wasn't allowed anymore, so uh, uh, when he makes announcements uh, into the intercom, uh, he, he, he hides his identity by not saying his name. He just says something like, uh, on behalf of the captain and the crew, I wish you a pleasant flight. So mm-hmm. he doesn't start off his announcement with saying, this is the king of the Netherlands. This is my majesty, the yes. king. <laughs> yes, I wish all my subjects a pleasant flight. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to think that he kind of disguises his voice somehow when he speaks as well. He's a kind of Batman voice <laughs> so that people don't recognize him. But what did um, the newspapers around the world make of this uh, story for? Uh, well, for example, uh, the New York Times, uh, their headline was, uh, who's at the controls on KLM? Sometimes the Dutch king. And also uh, the Daily Mail wrote, uh, this is your king speaking, Dutch monarch Willem-Alexander reveals his secret life. Yeah, and in the Washington Post uh, said uh, President Trump plays golf, Princess Harry and William play polo, and the King of the Netherlands likes to relax by flying commercial airliners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he said in the interview that that's, it's his hobby to fly planes. Yeah, he it, finds it relaxing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's how he takes his mind off things. He finds it relaxing to be in charge of uh, 150 lives. And, uh, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. So, do you think guys think that you've been on a flight that was co-piloted by Willem-Alexander? Uh, I never 
I had a uh, rough flight on KLM. So okay, so you don't I, think so? No, I, no, I mostly so. fly EasyJet. So I don't so I, I don't <laughs> I've been to, on a couple to, of City Hopper, KLM City Hopper flights, so perhaps I have been uh, piloted by yeah, the king. That's a good chance, yeah. While King Willem Alexander is wearing a pilot's uniform, police chiefs are considering changes in their own uniforms. The police force in Amsterdam is considering allowing headscarves as part of its uniform. The force is concerned about a lack of diversity in the ranks and wants its officers to reflect the ethnic makeup of the city's population. Currently, only 17 police officers come from an immigrant background, whereas 52% of the city's population does. Yeah, so how, uh, how did uh, these changes come about? Well, former PVDA politician Fatima Alatik, who wears a headscarf herself, was hired a, a year and a half ago by the police department to improve diversity within the force. She pushed for the moves as one of the problems cited by the police in adequately protecting the population is that there is a distrust between the police and minority residents. Right, so the idea is that, uh, that the police force becomes more representative of the people that they're, they're serving. Basically. Right, and that yeah. they'll have better connections within the, the communities that they're that they're trying to police. And, and what do you think? Is it a good idea? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's kind of absurd that you're not allowed to have these, I guess, wear a headscarf as it is. Although, um, one of the things that this uh, Ade article noted is, is that it's pretty commonplace to allow uh, headscarves and, and other religious symbolisms with, with uh, in the police force in, in the U.S. So, I guess you sort of come up with it not being a, a strange thing. But it, it's interesting because currently all signs of religion are banned, so you also couldn't wear a yarmulke or a, or a Christian cross. Mm. But interestingly, this ban wasn't the policy of the police force, but instead part of regulations set by the Ruta One cabinet when it was in a coalition with the Pei mm -hmm. So it seems to me like it's a bit more of a political move than a, than a practical kind of thing that the, yeah, the police find useful. Yeah, definitely, because it was being discussed on New Zealand last night, uh, I think, and there didn't really seem to be any practical objections of why, you know, yeah. why you shouldn't be allowed to wear a headscarf with your police uniform. They're not incompatible. It doesn't interfere with your ability to do your job. Right. And, uh, you know, and obviously there's an issue of distrust among ethnic minority communities with the police, which uh, you're only really going to solve if there are more police officers that... Um, you know, that are from that background. As yeah. long as it's a blue headscarf, though. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's okay. But Amsterdam isn't the only city in the Netherlands with the problems related to this the diversity in its police force. We uh, discussed this previously because Rotterdam has also been looking yeah. into measures to increase this, so it's apparently a bit of a problem throughout the country. Yeah, and in The Hague as well, I think there's, a, there's, there's been an ongoing issue with the police force in the, in the Schildersweit particularly, which is a very heavy ethnic population area. Uh, they had the riots two or three years ago around about the death of Mitch Enriquez, and then they, you know, they said they needed to have a better communication between the police and the population. Well, one policeman who'd probably be happy to have his face covered for the next <laughs> while is uh, the officer who, in Leiden who ended up chasing himself around town. Amuk Vest reported that he pulled over a transit van after he picked up a GPS signal from a decoy bike, which is uh, police use these to catch out bicycle thieves. But when the driver opened up the back of the van, there was no sign of the bike, um, and the officer was even more puzzled when the signal stayed put while the van pulled away. And at that point, he solved the mystery by opening up the back of his own van and discovering the decoy bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, why did he report this? He yeah. could have just kept the secret. Yeah, I'm not, I would not have told anyone <laughs> no. that I had done No, this. I'd have gone back to the station and said, uh, yeah, and anything less embarrassing like I got lost, you know, yeah. or I was chased by a, by a rabbit or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was chased by a rabbit is less embarrassing than I was chasing myself. Good news for rich white Christian pensioners whose children have moved out. They are quite happy. In the latest edition of the Atlas for Gemeenten, an information guide covering the 50 biggest municipalities in the Netherlands, surveyors asked about happiness and discovered that the Gelderland town of Ada is the happiest place in the country and Rotterdam is the unhappiest. So what's the difference between Rotterdam and Ada? 
uh, about 7%. The population of <laughs> 89% of the population of Ada reported that they were happy, while 82% of the residents of Rotterdam did. Overall, it seems the Netherlands is a pretty happy country. Mm-hmm. And what are the some main factors that they said contributed to happiness? Uh, having friends, uh, having a job, and good health were the most important factors of a person's happiness. And generally speaking, people in small towns were happier than those in big cities. Why is that? I am not sure. The The study did not go into detail on that. Although I think that um, one of the things that they did note was is that people often move to cities in, in looking for work and sometimes lose their community. So maybe you lose a bit of your, your social circle and that decreases. Yeah, your and they kind of said disappointment was the main factor in unhappiness. So often you move to the city looking for expecting a better job and a better life and it doesn't happen. And then you're bitter and disappointed and that's why you're less happy. And I find rather than in my experience disappointing as well. So I mean, I find Ada pretty disappointing. <laughs> Well, Rotterdamers were cheered up uh, last weekend because Feyenoord clinched their first league title in 18 years. The team beat Heracles Almelo 3-1 on the last day of the season to finish a point ahead of arch-rivals Ajax. Club captain Dirk Kout announced his retirement in midweek, having signed off in style by scoring a hat-trick in his final game. And how did uh, the fans uh, celebrate their victory? Uh, well, they didn't riot, which is what they did the week before <laughs> when they lost to uh, Excelsior, so they were in a much better mood. Um, but about 140,000 fans packed the centre of Rotterdam uh, during most of Monday. They had an official presentation um, on the City Hall balcony. Um, and so many people turned out, the police eventually started telling people who hadn't set out already to, to stay home and watch it on TV because the centre was just too full. Yeah, I, I even got an NL alert text message yes, uh, I did as on well. my phone. Yeah. Uh, don't go to Rotterdam. Yeah. I wasn't planning. Yeah. <laughs> so what does this get for Feyenoord? Uh, well, they now uh, qualify for the group stage of the Champions League for next season um, and that means they'll get uh, around 12 million euros in TV rights and uh, depending on how they do in that competition they, they stand to gain about 9 million in prize money and then obviously if they go through they earn even more so it's a good windfall for them. And then what about uh, Dirk Kout? Yeah, Dirk Kout, well, worth mentioning him because it's the end of his career. He's been playing for 19 years. Um, started out at a, yeah, he's a very old man right now. Right he's, now. he's 36, yeah. which might be old for you, Paul. Very old. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, very old in, in, in football terms. It is. Yeah, no, he's 36 and in, in, in very good shape. He's hardly been injured through his career. Um, and he's won, well, he's, yeah, he scored his 100th goal for Feyenoord in that game. He's had 104 Dutch international caps and he's uh, played for 19 seasons. He's played in the World Cup final and he scored in the Champions League final. What so, a way to go. So, yeah, he's, yeah. he's had a pretty uh, pretty eventful uh, career. And he's popular with the fans as well. He's kind of, a, they see him as a typical kind of final player. He's quite down to earth. He's not flashy. He, he, he didn't marry a model or an actress. He married a <laughs> yeah, nurse. I was going to say, his yeah. wife's a nurse, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she carried on working even after she married a famous footballer, oh. uh, right up to the birth of their daughter. We like our down, uh, down-to-earth players. Yeah. So well, Molly, stay down to earth. I, I um. <laughs> don't get out I don't even know what a hat trick is, so I don't think anyone's <laughs> recruiting me for the final team. <laughs> Until now, the people of Ede are the happiest in the country, but soon that will be the people living in Rene. The Oude Hans Dierenpark Zoo over there announced that, starting from May 30th, visitors can finally see the two giant pandas that arrived there last month. Wu Yang and Xingya needed a month to rest from traveling and getting used to their new environment. The pandas are doing well, eating bamboo, and Chinese officials finally approved the opening of their enclosure to the public. 
So when are we going to see the pandas, guys? May 30th. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Now you need to uh, uh, register a time slot on uh, the internet wow. because they, uh, they they expect so many people to, to, to visit the zoo that uh, yeah they need to take measures to, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of crowd control. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah they, they had the same system uh, when they had the pandas in Edinburgh Zoo in Scotland and people would get a time ticket and they, they turn up for their sort of 20-minute slot and the pandas would be inside asleep. They wouldn't <laughs> see them at all. And then you'd have to wait for about another three months before there was a, uh, an Another opportunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess you can go look at the uh, pretty panda enclosure, even if the pandas are not. Uh, yeah, it's the best in the world. It is. I yeah. heard it's the best in the world. <laughs> we'll be discussing the failed attempts to form a new government next after these words from our sponsors. Access is an independent, not for profit organization which has been helping internationals successfully settle in the Netherlands for the past 30 years. Access is run entirely by a team of highly skilled, motivated, and professional volunteers have themselves been experts. Their vision is to provide essential, comprehensive and unique services nationally through the expertise and experience of their volunteer expatriate community. You can find out more about AXIS and the services they offer at the website www.axis-nl.org. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. It has been two months since elections in the Netherlands and four parties have been in negotiation to form a government ever since. But rather unexpectedly, it was announced on Monday that the talks between Liberal Party VVD, the Christian Democrats CDA, D66 and GroenLinks have failed. On Wednesday, the Tweede Kamer reappointed Edith Schippers as chief negotiator. She didn't waste any time and started to talk with all parties individually that very same day. However, the political leaders have reached an impasse on Thursday night. On today's podcast, we'll freshen up your memory on how the format C works, what went wrong, and what will happen in the future. Yeah, can we start with, for the listeners, how the formatsy works? And yes. does it normally take two months? In the Netherlands, you obviously have the coalition government, so you always need more parties um, involved uh, to get together and agree a government deal. And the first thing they tried was a four-party coalition with uh, the Liberal Party of Mark Rutte, the FVD, the Christian Democrats, D66, and the left-wing Green Party, GroenLinks. Um, and they have been talking for 18 days altogether, um, and that broke down on Monday. So now they're going to try to have a different combination. I mean, look at the election result, basically the Liberals, Fefe Day and the Christian Democrats and D66 are kind of the core the three parties are really you need to have to form a government. There's no really, really realistic way of having a government without them. They've tried negotiating with Cool Links, that's failed. So now Edith Skipper has been reappointed to try and find a new combination. The obvious replacements seem to be the Christian Union, but uh, that's problematic. And uh, yeah, she's now got to look at alternatives. Can I ask a question about Edith Schippers? Is it typical for the same sort of leader to be reappointed after coalition talks fall apart? It used to be that the king or the queen uh, appointed the negotiator. So whenever um, a a negotiation failed everyone went back to the to the queen and she said well let's uh, appoint this person who can uh, find out what to do next but they changed this in uh, 2012 but in 2012 the government was only uh, formed between two parties and they you know at first try they managed to form a government so now this was actually the first time that a negotiation failed without having the queen around to or, or the king around to, mm. to to guide everyone so this was uh, unprecedented in constitutional law actually so um, yeah 
So Aedis Kippers has had to present a report to Parliament, which I think is a new thing, isn't it, Paul? That's not happening before. Yeah, it before. was uh, yeah. Two, uh, two, pa- two pages uh, <laughs> long, so it wasn't a big report. So. Yeah. she writing it for Trump? <laughs> <laughs> so why did the talks fall apart? Do we know? Well, on, on Monday, um, the Algemeen Dagblad reported that the negotiations were, were going to fail because of the uh, environmental issues, uh, but it turned out Aedis Schippers had a slip of her tongue, and she said uh, the, the main issue is uh, immigration. They did they they couldn't find an agreement on immigration. And what Edith Schippers did was whenever they were discussing a topic and they, they, they couldn't find common ground, she would say, well, let's discuss this next week. And uh, But because we are, are they were negotiating for two months now, she said, well, let's have a deadline. On Monday, I want an agreement on immigration. The four parties couldn't manage to, to do that. And that's why the negotiations failed, because they couldn't reach an agreement on the deadline Edith Schippers um, put in place. Uh, so immigration is the main issue now. And that's where Geert Wilders comes around because, you know, his party is founded based on the idea that immigration should be as tough as possible. Geert Wilders is now saying, Mark Rutte, if you need someone to have a, you know, tough immigration policy, I'm your guy. Why are you not negotiating with me. I mean, I think the answer to that question, right, is is that there was a coalition government between the VVD and the PVV that ended badly, mm, um, yeah. and that Rota has been very burned by this, and he's yes. also made some very clear statements during the campaign that he is unwilling to work with the PVV. Indeed, and Sipran Buma of CDA as well, he was in that coalition too, so they are traumatized by uh, having Wilders as a uh, coalition partner, and not to mention that Wilders himself, he ruled out the possibility of him uh, forming a government with Mark Rutte as well. So, Yeah, he kind of started this, didn't he? A year before the election, he said he, he wouldn't go into government with the Fefe Day if Rutte was leader of the party. Yeah, but then Rutte has since said that, uh, I think repeatedly during the election, that uh, there was a 0% chance uh, of uh, his party and the PVV going into government together. Yeah, he wasn't ruling the PVV out, but there is a 0% chance of me forming <laughs> yeah. a government Sounds like ruling it out, but yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, and of course the other um, partner in the trio was uh, D66, who were probably the most directly opposed to the PVV of any yes, of the parties in the Parliament. the arch nemesis of yeah. Of the PVV. Yeah, because they sort of re- represent you know, the, the metropolitan, well-educated uh, liberals uh, yes. who are the uh, people that uh, Hit Wilders kind of identifies himself most strongly against. So uh, what's next now? So the, so as I understand, right, we've, we've kind of got two options here. Either they go forward with a minority government, which I thought was an interesting concept, or they try to make some sort of uh, coalition government with the Christian Uni, right? That seems to be the next uh, are, the next choice. Yeah, there are several options. Uh, the, the option that is the most logical right now is that you know, these three uh, core par- uh, parties form a coalition with the Christian Union, but uh, there is a complicating factor here. D66 is in favor of abortion, in favor of uh, organ donation, in favor of life ending uh, uh, yeah, euthanasia. Mm-hmm. euthanasia, and the Christian Union is opposed essence against all these uh, uh, all these things. So how can these two parties work together? They are, you know, further apart. So one of the arguments in favor of the Christian Union is is that they have this sort of humanitarian view of of refugees and, and, and integrating yes. people. So mm-hmm. despite the fact that they are a bit more of a right wing party, they have kind of what are more sort of closer to say, yeah, Hrun Link's kind of thoughts on yep. immigration. So how does this actually fit? If, 
if immigration is the problem, how mm. does the Christian Union actually fix their problem? Well, that's definitely a stumbling block, because I think uh, Mark Rutter's uh, has kind of commented on along those lines that he, he doesn't see very much difference between Kroon Links and the uh, Christian Union on the immigration question. Yeah. So he's slightly sceptical of them. Obviously, the Christian Democrats, they would like to have the Christian Union as a kind of fellow Christian party in the coalition. They're quite positive towards that. Uh, but D66, as Paul says, are very much against it. So we have a situation where Christian, I think the Christian Democrats really didn't really want to go into coalition with uh, with Kroon Links in the beginning. Kroon Links are now out the Christian, the Christian Union come in, that's uh, something that um, is compatible with the Christian Democrats, but not with D66. So they're both quite problematic for yeah, one how, reason or another. The question is, how is Christian Union a better party, for, uh, a better coalition partner in, in this coalition than GroenLinks? Well, in what you say, there there are a lot of problems with that. And also, the Christian Union only has, they would only give them a one-seat majority in the yeah. Tweedekammer, which is quite easy to fall apart. So, and in the Eerstekammer as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not an ideal partner. So the question question is now is it efficient to form a coalition with a fourth party mm. even though you only have a one seat majority in both houses isn't it better to just form a minority cabinet yeah. and, and find your majorities along the way yeah. Yeah. so is this is this our only choice right the only choice is either a minority government or a partnership with the christian uni or are there other options no on the there table? are other options on the table too but these uh these are all five to six uh party coalitions uh emil rumer for example he he proposed a coalition with six left-wing parties he mm. is of the socialist party of right the socialist yes. party mm. including parties that only have four seats or two seats or three seats so how can you form a, a government with that i don't see it happening it seems unlikely but i think it was interesting this week was, was that ritter uh, actually made overtures towards rumor to come to the negotiation table which from the face of it you'd think the favorite day who are right-wing liberals have got absolutely nothing in common with the socialists at all. I mean, the socialists' main election promise was to cut was was to completely overhaul uh, the healthcare insurance system, which uh, Rutter's dead against. But Rutter seems to be more inclined to form a coalition with uh, Rumer than with the Christian Union on the face of it. So yeah. I think that tells you a lot about uh, Rutter's stance towards uh, any kind of coalition with the Christian Union. Uh, so, the, so the Socialist Party are a possible numerically they're an option, but I think Rumer has said himself he doesn't want to go into any kind of government with Rutter, and he favours a kind of a left-wing combination with the Christian Democrats. But uh, the Christian Democrat leader, Bruma, he says, no, that's not going to work. So I'm not gonna, that's a non-starter as well. So um, we truly reached an <laughs> impasse right now. Yeah. Is, there a, is there like a, a totally outside the box option that yes, they just attempt to form a coalition without these so-called motor block parties uh, or just with one of them or something well, there along is, there is a There is an out of the box uh, option that includes the motor block parties. Okay, what is it, Paul? That's a coalition with these three parties and the PVDA and the Labour Party. And would they be interested after they took such a beating in the last election? Well, at first, they're not. But when, when you smell power, sometimes you can be... Uh, you oh, know, perhaps they could be. The Which, yeah. And the PVDA was part of the previous coalition, so it they've is. already worked together with a number of That's these uh, parties. And uh, the PVDA, CDA, and D66, they uh, them together form a, could form a leftist group in a, uh, in a coalition with the VVD. So you might end up with the same situation as the last government, where you have one big party on the right, one big party on the left, and then you have the same situation, the same coalition as the previous government. Yeah, Which but was fairly course, successful. Yes, except yeah. that, of course, it wasn't successful for the Labour Party in the election because they took an absolute hammering. Yeah. So I think Lodewijk has at this point has said, no, I'm, I'm ruling out any involvement in government. But as perhaps, as Paul says, as, um, as, as time goes by and as the other contenders drop out to the running, perhaps uh, he'll be lured back to the negotiation table. So to that question, we have discussed previously during the run-up to the coalition about how minority parties in a coalition often do not fare well 
well in the next election. So we saw this, you know, that PVDA took a serious beating in the last election. Is that a, was, do you guys think that that was an incentive for Yasa Klaver to try to stymie the, the coalition talks and thus keep Kroon Links out of being in this position? Yeah, I think uh, with the Kroon Links, uh, the, the point with them was that they were the most radical, most ambitious party of the quartet. They were the ones who wanted to make real change. And Klaver said at the outset, he wanted to see, make a real difference in three areas, which was the environment, uh, income inequality, and um, immigration, uh, or rather ref- the refugee question. And um, those are the three issues that Edith Skipper said the coalition talks founded on. In the end, what happened was that Kroon Links had the most ambitious plans for the coalition, but they were also the one party that were dispensable. So when the other parties lined up and said, you know, we're not prepared to move towards you, it was better for Claver maybe to walk away and um, then to get involved in a coalition where he would have had to uh, accept an awful lot of kind of, you know, um, right-wing policy from the other parties, which might have been unpalatable to his voters. What Jesse Claver is counting on, him, I think, is he, he walked away from the from the coalition negotiations now. He's waiting to see what happens next. If he isn't included in a coalition, then it's fine. He stays in the opposition. But uh, if all the options uh, uh, fail as well, they're going to they're gonna go back to him. And he asks him to join them as well. And then he can uh, uh, have a lot of uh, a lot more of his plans uh, accomplished. Yeah, that's, a, that's a win-win situation. So it puts him in a better negotiation. Yeah, he has, more, bar- he has more bargaining power. That way, yeah. yeah that, but but the Hun Links party they exist now for what is it twenty years, mm. and so for, for him it's really time to uh, to join a government. But obviously he's sensitive to the thing that uh, Molly mentioned that uh, the minority parties in the coalition tend to be the first to get hit uh, when things go wrong and voters yes, uh, but if you stay have away four from you. Parties, uh, yeah. in your in your coalition, uh, is that still the case? I don't know. Paul, we don't is know that still we... the case? I don't think it might be. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, because I've seen some pushback sort of online and kind of with people that I know that have voted for Hrun Links that they're quite irritated that the line that got drawn was over immigration because the argument is sort of like, well, you don't vote for Hrun Links on immigration, you vote for them on the environment. And so the fact that they mm. were not willing to sort of let go of the immigration argument in favor of trying to move uh, environmental policy could mm. maybe cost them, yeah. I don't know. Because they're not just the Green Party, they're Hrun Links, so they also have a left-wing um, right. profile that they want to push forward. And, you know, and then that includes having what Claver calls a more humane policy on refugees and also trying to um, reduce the gap between richest and poorest. Right. So that's very much a core part of his program, and yeah. I think he, I think he was worried that, that those voters who, who who vote on that issue, if if he has to move too much towards the the parties on the right in a coalition deal, then those voters are just going to are going to fall away the way that they they deserted the Labour Party last time. Uh, yes, Claver organised a uh, meet up in a uh, big venue uh, yeah. the day after they uh, they ended the negotiations in order to explain uh, what happened to his voters. He didn't explain anything. Uh, he said he was uh, um, uh, willing to let the uh, kilometer having go. The uh, yeah, that's the the tax on on driving. So you would be taxed yeah. by the kilometer that you drive yes. per year. Yes, yeah. that was what he revealed, and that was the only thing he revealed and explained. So yeah. yeah. So now my question is: Is what happens if you have a minority government? I mean, how does that work? Well, right now we have a minority uh, uh, government. They yeah. have 64, 74 seats uh, in parliament. What happens is uh, you have an idea. You have a law. Usually there is always one extra party that uh, supports you. Mm. Uh, if it's a controversial topic, you need to you know, actively uh, try to find support and then uh, parties can uh, bring in their ideas. It's, it's, it's a more democratic situation, in my opinion, rather than you mm. have a majority and they decide everything that happens. Has there been a minority coalition in the Dutch, uh, in the Tweedekammer in the past? Strictly speaking, the uh, 2010 government was a uh, minority uh, cabinet. It was CDA with the VVD and the PVV supported them, mm. uh, but they weren't 
officially part no, of the No, they're, they're, they're the supply deal, didn't they? Yeah. Where, yeah. Where the, the, the two parties that were officially in the coalition agreed to make a certain number of concessions towards Wilders, mainly on immigration yes. and, um, and, uh, and integration. It would, and it would sometimes happen that the PVV didn't agree with a specific law and then they would just find hmm. uh, find a different party to support them. Yeah. So it is, it is a workable situation. Uh, the last government didn't have a majority in the Senate, so they always had to find uh, occasional coalitions with other parties to have a majority in the Senate. It's a workable situation. It's not an ideal situation from the government's point of view, but from a democratic point of view, I think it's a a better situation. Yeah, and perhaps as well, something like a supply deal uh, like the first Twitter cabinet had with Wilders might be more appealing to uh, to Groen Links because then they could could really concentrate, say, that they could get get an agreement maybe on their green policies, but remain in opposition um, on their kind of social agenda where it's harder for them to, to, to seek a compromise from the parties on the right. Yeah, yeah so, I didn't yeah, even think about that yeah. actually. A gedoog constructie with links. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, that, that might be an option for them. So what? Uh, what's what's the next step here? Schippers is going to go around and try to find uh, someone else to talk to? Yes, uh, so the, the, the most logical uh, combination now is, is the three core parties with the Christian Union. D66 is not very willing to start negotiations with them. So mm-hmm. they first have to, uh, you know, convince uh, Alexander Pechtold of D66 that uh, uh, Christian Union should join them on the negotiation table. I would expect they would probably start towards the Christian Union, but it's a question of how long that remains a realistic option and then perhaps look at um, any other possibilities from majority coalition. Um, but we might well end up uh, with uh, with some kind of minority construction. We'll uh, update you in two months. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we will not discuss yeah, the coalition talks at all between now and then. Well, that's all we have for you uh, this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. My thanks to Molly Quell and Gordon Derek. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. (laughs) 